Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. Welcome back to the Agent Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella. I've got a, a very, very, very awesome guest today, Tyler Ford. Tyler, uh, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it, Tom. Uh, pleasure being on. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah. So um, like I was mentioning to you, Tyler, like the, the whole thrust of the podcast is that, you know, every agent should be an investor in some capacity. It doesn't mean that you have to flip a thousand houses a year. It doesn't mean you've got to own a thousand rental properties or anything like that, but you should mm -hmm. invest in some way, shape or form. And, you know, when I saw the show notes come through for you, I was excited to talk about kind of, you know, your experiences and kind of what you've done. So, Tell us a little bit about like the, the beginning story for you. What what kind of got you in real estate to begin with? And when did you start investing? Well, so the backstory is, you know, my first year in college, I lived in the dorms. I hated it. <laughs> I wanted to go to a different college. My parents really wanted me to stay put. And I'm glad they they encouraged me to stay where I was at. But long and short of it, I had some money invested, a little bit of money invested in some stocks, and they helped, helped me do a kitty condo, FHA kitty condo. And I bought my own house in college, had a roommate, was able to house hack. And I didn't, you know, that's now become the thing at the time that this was, you know, over 35 years ago. So long and short of it, I bought a house, got a roommate, roommate pretty much covered the mortgage. And when I graduated from college, I put about $40,000 in my pocket. So, All right. so, so getting started early was not your problem. No. And, and in the meantime, too, during that, in the summer times, I would come home to Tucson and I would intern at Grubb and Ellis, which is a commercial real estate company. And it was uh, through the college, I would get credits. And the first year that I interned, I actually put some deals together and I, they couldn't pay me because I wasn't licensed. Mm -hmm. And so the second summer, I got my real estate license and interned at the same time, and they were able to pay me on a few deals. So I've had my license now for over 30 years. And uh, so I've been a, an agent investor going on 30 years and started at a young age and graduated from college, bought my first foreclosure, uh, ended up buying some foreclosures that I ended up keeping. And that's kind of was the start of, of my real estate career. Nice. So the the first property that you did that I guess you house hacked, where was that locating? What were some of the numbers on that? Well, I lived in Flagstaff, Arizona. I went to NAU and uh, it's been a while, so I don't I, I don't remember all the numbers. I just remember that the amount that I was able to put down and my mortgage payment, my my roommate covered the rent. That's kind of what I remember. Yep. So it was pretty close to just break even. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I, I was able to keep my expenses down, but more importantly, you know, it was, for me, it was all about the balance sheet and net worth and, and learning that at an early age and then having equity, uh, when I graduated and, and sold it in hindsight, uh, I probably should have kept that property because I look at it now. And, uh, I mean, that home is worth about a half a million dollars and, and I, I paid, I paid, I think one twenty for it. And you were thinking about net net worth and stuff like that when you were just 20 or whatever. 
Yeah, I my you know, I got a business degree. So yeah, it was for me, it's all about the balance sheet. I'm pretty conservative. So although cash flow is good, I'm also pretty conservative in terms of aggressively paying down my balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And you know, my and we'll get into my model, but uh yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it uh, for me, it was not necessarily the cash flow at the time, but just reducing my expenses so I could put myself through college and at the end of the day have some build some equity so I wasn't throwing money out the window in terms of rent or, you know, living in the dorms, things like that. So after you graduated from college, did you go out and get a job kind of in the real world or did you go right into real estate? Well, I went, yeah, it's kind of full circle. So I went right into real estate and I started doing really well. And I was buying foreclosures. I was fixing and flipping. And the ones that I liked, I was keeping as long-term rentals. The person that I started using for mortgages, it was one of the top privately held mortgage companies in the country, First Magnus Financial. Long and short of it, uh, he talked me into getting into the mortgage business. Mm-hmm. said I would be great. So I kept my license and I jumped into the mortgage business. I did really well in you know late 90s up until like 2006, where I was still buying and I was up to 30 doors while I was in the mortgage business because I was just taking the money and piling it into to rental properties. And when the market melted down uh, during the last cycle, I transitioned out of the mortgage business and then went all in on the real estate side when prices were at, uh, at all-time lows. And you talked about, you know, like during that phase of your life and your career, you accumulated a good amount of rentals, you bought some foreclosures. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things people always, you know, ask and, you know, have as a hesitation is like, how do you get the funding for it? Like, what were you doing? Were you doing just traditional funding and saving up down payments? Or were you doing anything creative? What were you doing there? Well, at the beginning of it, when I didn't have, you know, a job and I couldn't show income and I wasn't financeable, you know, it took a couple of years for me to become financeable. At a, at a young age, you know, I went out and had some built some relationships with a couple people that uh, funded my deals. So with the equity that I had from the property that I sold from college, I used that money as, you know, the equity. And, you know, they were at the time... I, I, I didn't I didn't know what I didn't know, but I was putting 20% down and then I was getting people to fund the rest. And then I was fixing and flipping and I did really well early on on a couple fix and flips. And then I had enough cash then to then start rolling that money into rental properties that I kept. Yeah, so we, this is like a common theme. I feel like it's almost with everybody we've ever had on the show that's accumulated anywhere of a sizable rental. It's like their first rental is like this small thing that they like, saved up some, they scrapped to get money. Then they parlayed that into like another couple deals. And then you parlay that into more. And then all of a sudden um, you've got down payments for, for more properties. So it sounds like that's one of the things that you did. Um, you said that you were raising capital. Was that from friends and family or how was that working? Or was that lenders? Well, it was private money sources here locally that when I was interning at Grubb and Ellis, that commercial real estate company, I actually developed some pretty good relationships with some pretty, you know, successful commercial guys that became really good friends with. And uh, they actually kind of backed me. They believed in me when I got out of college and uh, they really wanted me to get into the commercial side. And I told them I wanted to go down the residential path, but long and short of it, those guys that I ended up meeting uh, have, are, are, became really good friends and they they ended up backing me on a few deals to get me going. 
So now do you, were they doing that as a favor or was there like a financial interest? Like what was the, you know, why do you think that they lent to you? Well, you know, I was giving, um, you know, at the time it was either 10, 12%, you know, interest only. I don't know. They just, uh, they wanted, I mean, they're the type of guys that just wanted to help a new guy, young guy kind of get started and be a part of somebody's success. Uh, and they believed in me at a young age, you know, they were, they were in their probably forties and fifties at the time, very successful. And, uh, I just think that they felt as though they wanted to help me out. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a couple of components to that. And I think that people, you know, everybody wants to raise money, like everyone that doesn't have money. And I had no money when I started, you know, you want to raise money, mm-hmm. but you know, you need two things. And you, you mentioned both of those in, in what you just said. Number one is the relationships. So relationships with people who have money. And there's, there's a lot more people out there that if, if you come from a place like me, where like most of the people you grew up with didn't have money, You'd be surprised at how many people do have money that are out there in the world that have that built a business, they own real estate, they do something, they've got money. So you've got to get those relationships like, you know, you got that relationship. And then you said another super, super important thing was that they believed in you. So why do you think that they believed in you? And for somebody that's looking to raise capital, like how do you manufacture that? Or like, what was it about you that they believed in? Well, yeah, I think, you know, at some point I get it now, you know, when you see somebody younger that's hardworking and, you know, out there working hard, you want to be part of their success because you believe that, you know, down the road, they're, they're going to be successful. And I think that's what they saw in me. You know, I interned for them for a couple of years, you know, I showed up on time, you know, I did everything they told me to do, you know, I was reliable, responsible. I mean, those are all I mean, people have to to like and trust you. And, uh, yeah. you know, those two things, you know, getting rapport, like trust when you're buying, especially when you're buying, you know, off market deals, dealing with somebody that wants to sell. But that's what they I mean, I just and we, we became good friends, but they just believe that I was going to do what I said I was going to do. Because, so, because you had done that in the past. You, exactly. You, you illustrated that you were going to do what you said you were going to do. Right. And so a lot of people that lend they have money typically for a reason. They're sophisticated enough to know like, where should I invest my money? Who should I put it in? What's the type of person? And, you know, you, you get into, you know, you mentioned the age thing, you get into your forties and fifties and you've been around the block and you see, okay, who are the types of people that are successful, who are going to be successful? Do they, do they display the, you know, attributes that you'd want to look for? And if I lent to Tyler, am I going to get repaid? And, is that exciting enough for me to get repaid and also be a part of some of his first kind of longshim, right? That's, that's an exciting thing. Even me on the brokerage side, like that's something I get excited about. I see it. I'm not that, you know, old, but I'm, I'm almost 40 now. And I see, you know, a 20 something year old, you know, walking in the door, like putting in the effort. I'm like, oh man, like, I just want to like get them off the ground. And it's the same type of thing with lending. Like they looked at you, they said, he's going to pay me back this is going to launch them. And, you know, you just kind of went from there. So you, as you were in the mortgage industry, you mm-hmm. got up to what you said, 40 doors. Yeah. I mean, the mortgage business really accelerated me. I ended up having the top team in Tucson and, you know, at the time was making really, really good money. And it just, it, it, it you know, I basically put everything I was making, I just was dumping it into mm-hmm. multifamily properties. I ended up getting up to about 30 doors. 
long and short of it, um, got a little bit lucky at the height of the market. I was doing some lending for another investor that was doing a 1031 exchange from Colorado to Arizona. And he was struggling to find properties. And he said, well, what do you got? And I, I showed him my portfolio. He ended up like he had this huge 1031. I mean, it was like, I mean, he had like $3 million to place. Yep. And uh, anyway, long and short of it, he offered me prices that I just couldn't pass up at the time. In hindsight, I wish I would have kept them all. But I mean, yep. it was just, you know, it was a cash 1031. And I was just like, wow. I mean, I couldn't pass it up. But in hindsight, I was kind of lucky because it was at the top of the market. Yep. And I ended up basically selling them pretty much like 90% of my portfolio at the top of the market on a 1031 exchange. So I'm in a, a coaching program, uh, you know, on how to buy like larger apartment complexes right now, because that's one of the things we're focused on. And one of the mentors in the group, they said, you know, that we were talking about buying and holding and we were talking, I, I did something similar where I accumulated a lot of rentals that sold them off. And it's funny because like he said, you know, I've had so many students and everybody thinks they're always going to hold forever. Right, right. And then something happens and, and you don't always hold forever. And it's like, sometimes it makes sense to sell, you know, obviously for you, you timed it right. And that's, that's great. Um, you know, you said that you were, you were lucky. I mean, I think uh, sometimes luck, you know, comes to those who are prepared and do the right things. And uh, another thing that you mentioned in that last segment was just about um, you were dumping all your excess money. So another thing that I think is so important, especially for agents is like, the market goes in cycles, right? And there are years where you can do way better and you do way better. And that's your opportunity. Like if you're going to build your, your balance sheet, like Tyler talked about, like you've got to save during those years, you've got to invest during those years because the other years might not be quite as good. So obviously the mortgage industry during the years you were talking about late nineties, early two thousands uh, was amazing. Um, but you, you know, you capitalized on that and then ended up, you know, selling off some of that. So the, the mortgage market, you know, the, really the whole economy tanked in, you know, 07, 08, you know, around then. So uh, a lot of people in the mortgage industry were making less money. What made you decide like, hey, the, the, I don't want to do mortgage anymore. I want to just do like residential real estate. Well, I, again, I had one of the top teams. I was the number one loan officer in all of home services all across the country, a Warren Buffett company. And I was doing over 500 uh, transactions on the mortgage side a year. And I just got burned out, to be honest with you. I got tired of dealing with agents and being the whooping boy. You know, you got tired just, of dealing with agents, so you became an agent? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> on the lending side, I mean, the thing about the, a good loan officer takes, there's so many things that are out in the lending business, there's so many things that are outside of your control, you yep. know, from underwriting to appraisals to people go and buying stupid stuff when they're under contract. And then at the end of the day, it comes back to the loan officer where you're responsible regardless. And, you know, and, and a good loan officer is at their desk 24 seven, and they've got 24 seven access to the agents. And I just got tired of that. And I wanted more freedom and flexibility. And so I just made the decision that uh, I was done with the mortgage business and I was going to, I wanted the freedom and flexibility just to have better use of my time in terms of coming and going and not being tied to, uh, to agents all day long. And uh, I mean, a good loan officer is, I mean, they're, 
they they're they're picking up their phone 24 uh, seven yeah. and dealing with agents on the purchase side. Cause 80% of my business was, was purchase money and not refi. And yeah. I focused, focused on the agent side and not the refi side, the more purchase money you do, the more refis you get. And so when the market turns, if you've got a good purchase money market business on the mortgage side, you're going to do a whole lot better. And that, that was my focus. Let's take a quick break from the episode to get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors. Join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So you left. Uh, what what brokerage did you join up with, and then what was your plan at that point? Oh, I left, and you know, so much has changed. One of the big reasons I ended up getting on the going back in the investment side because prior it was just you know, it was direct mail, it was bandit signs. I mean, it was pre-internet, just when the internet was no social media. So the marketing has changed over the years, and then you know, one of the things that I done successfully is evergreen SEO marketing. And that's what got me really excited about jumping back in on the investment side, knowing that um, I could build it organically uh, in terms of SEO and just create a lead engine that was low cost that I that I could that, that was much more predictable. So that's kind of what me got, got me excited to get back in and, and really focus in on uh, the investment side and buying off-market deals and having my license. But so, yeah, I, I jumped over. I've been with three brokerages over the last 30 years. Um, I'm now with, with EXP Realty. I was with Keller Williams a couple of years over. A couple of years ago, I trans transitioned over to EXP Realty. But the model that I've got with EXP allows me to make a ton of money in so many different directions as a real estate slash investor agent. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. Like how, what is your focus like now in terms of, you know, working the agent and investor side, I guess, together? Well, <clears throat> together. So I've got, you know, I've got tons of different websites that create a lot of leads. And the nice thing about the retail side of, of the lead gen is any lead that I get that I don't want, I pass down to people in my revenue share with an EXP. So I get rev share and I also get, uh, I do a referral agreement. So I gener generate a lot of leads on the retail side. Some I, some I take if they're close and I just know they're going to be easier to work with. Or if it's a close friend or family, you know, I do probably I'd say 20% of my business I do do on the retail side. 80% of it is just where I buy off market deals and then I hotel them in the MLS. So in this market, I get off market deals and then I do some light cleanup, no rehab, put them back in the MLS. I'm the agent and then just sell them in the MLS. And yeah, it's, in it's interesting how that like. How much you're renovating a house has changed over the last like few years too. It's oh, and that and that'll change. But a couple of years ago, I had something happen, and I just so I think it's now going on two and a half, three years ago. My wife and I were getting ready to go out of town for the for like two weeks during the summer, and I was right in the middle of a rehab. And my head guy, that was my main guy for ten years. Uh, I was going out of town. I prepaid him and I front loaded a Home Depot card so he could get everything done. And the plan was when we got back, you know, the home would be ready to list. I got home and nothing was done and he was nowhere to be found. 
And I lost about $20,000 on that deal. And at the time I was just, I don't know, I just, I was, I was frustrated with living at Home Depot every day. And at that point I made a change and I haven't done a rehab since. Yeah. So like, you know, like one of the big things that people tell me like, oh, why, you know, why don't I invest in real estate? One, one big part is the construction side. Right. Um, I know like I don't have a construction background. I'm lucky enough to have two partners who fill in on that role, but um, you really don't need to. I mean, what, you know, Tyler, what you're mentioning, the wholetailing component, for those of you who don't know what wholetailing is, is so you're closing on those deals, right? Yeah, we're doing a double being a licensed agent. Again, I'm really conservative. I do everything by the book. I'm not, it's not, you're not wholesaling. It's you're, yep. you're double closing. So I close on it. I take it down and then, and then I list it in the MLS. So, so I own the property and then I hotel it in the MLS. So it's, a, it's a little bit more expensive, yep. but for me, it's worth it just because I'm doing it the right way. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you, I mean, the benefit to doing that as well versus wholesaling and not closing on it is there is a big benefit to getting it out there to the entire market. That's the other thing. Like anytime that you wholesale a deal, you are not exposing it to everybody. So if, if you're, if once you close on it, once you put it on the MLS, I mean, you're opening it up to probably at least 10 times the amount of people, even if you have a really big buyer list, you'll never have all the buyers that are looking for homes. So um, I think that's the other benefit. So when you talk about wholesaling and buying and do you do anything? Do you do clean out? Like, what do you do there? Well, it depends on the home, but we'll do like, we'll clean it up, get all the junk out. You know, some, some of the homes we get just need carpet and paint clean up, you know, others that are, you know, our fix ups, we will just clean all the junk out and just clean it up the best we can without spending any money. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that don't need a full rehab that are livable and nice, but might might need carpet and paint or maybe you know roof will get it to the top end of what it's worth so the the, the things that are easy that don't require you know ripping up tile and cabinets and and things that you know kill your yeah you know, from a cash flow standpoint especially in this market you know a little yep. nervous and don't want to be caught you know with the musical chair when this market it's not a matter of if matter of when you know the market turns so the benefit too is you don't have your cash flow statement is just <laughs> i like it it's just a better feeling that you don't you're not bleeding cash until you get it sold so it's just light cleanup uh to maximize what we think we can get in terms of the uh the as is mls value yeah absolutely and so those off-market opportunities, you talked a lot about SEO. For those mm -hmm. of you who aren't familiar with SEO, that's basically doing a bunch of work on your website so that you, you show up high when somebody searches a key phrase on Google. Um, and that takes a lot of time, effort, and energy. I don't know how much you put in to get a bunch of leads, but that's definitely not something that someone can do in like 24-hour turnaround time. Um, is that how you're generating all of your deals or do you have other marketing streams too? Well, again, uh, a couple of years ago, I basically just said, I'm going to revamp my entire business. I locked myself up in my office for about two months and you're not, people probably won't believe this, but it's all I do. My cost per deal is we, we get, we're getting enough leads to buy one to three properties a month yep. uh, at you know, we buy one in 17 deals and my average cost per deal is between two and $400. Yeah. 
you buy one in 17 deals or one out of 17 of the leads that come through? It's one out of 15 to 17 leads that we get we're buying. So okay. I'm getting I'm I'm getting enough organic SEO leads to be consistently buying one to two to three, four, one to say four, one to three, possibly four a month in terms so, of our lead flow. And when we talk about like, you know, I've got an enormous marketing budget, which you know, sometimes I say proudly and sometimes I'm like, oh, well, probably be better to have a way lower, you know, marketing budget. Right. And I know not everyone can do that. So like, well, that's why I did it. I mean, the big boys are spending 30 to $40,000 a month and I didn't want to compete with them with money, but I knew I can compete with them with time. And, yeah. you know, I do something well once and I get paid over and over and over again. So, you know, I've just got a low cost, you know, model in terms of, but I've spent, you know, like you said earlier, you know, I spent, it took me about 12 months and I call it my two, six, one formula in terms of, it's not something that happens overnight, but I was willing to do the work up front, knowing that it would work over time. And it took, it took a good six to 12 months to start getting traction. But, uh, you know, now, you know, we generate a ton of just organic and, and that's pretty much what I do. I just focus on content to generate leads. And so would you say that, you know, for the average person that has time, is that a strategy that like most people can use if they like focus in on, or is it very, you know, tech complicated and something it's, that would be hard? It's not hard. You know, you just do one thing at a time and you learn as you go, but if you're willing to put in the work and you don't, if you, and I mean, I could spend the money on the budget. I just don't want to. Yeah. Uh, and so if somebody's low budget and they want to go down that path, it's just, you know, you got to put in the work, but it's not complicated. It's, it's content is king. And the more content you create, it's super easy to do. Eventually the more leads you're going to get. And it's, it's, it's evergreen marketing and it's, it's not difficult. Um, you don't have to build any websites. I mean, it's, it's just making it look professional, you know, the number one, you know, uh, other than the homepage, the, the most visited page other than the homepage is the about page. And a lot of people miss this, especially when it comes to the carrot sites. Yep. Uh, you got to have a really, really, really good about page because people want to like and trust you. And uh, the better you do with that, you know, online, by the time they get to you, they already know you and they're, they feel comfortable, comfortable with you. And when you show up to meet them, it's just all about gaining that rapport. But uh, yeah, I mean, back to your question, it's, it's, it's I, I haven't sent out a postcard in over two years. I mean, I, I've done it all: bandit signs, postcards, uh, ringless voice. Uh, I mean, you name it, I've done it. And uh, you know, we we used to have a big budget, and I just got tired of not having an ROI on on some of the marketing that I was doing, and it was hit or miss for me. And uh, just finally said, I'm I'm done with it, and I'm just going to focus on organic SEO. So how much of your time a week now are you spending on the SEO part? Just so listeners can get an understanding, I guess, like one of the takeaways from here is obviously you don't need to have a, a huge marketing budget if you're willing to put in the time. So I'm curious, like for people that are listening and maybe want to get into SEO, mm -hmm. what time commitment are they looking at that they'd have to, you know, put in? Well, I, you know, people, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts with Trevor at Carrot and there was. I mean, I have a ton of people that are always reaching out to me and everybody, everybody kept asking me this question and I couldn't answer it. Like I, I just, I would answer it, but it was never a good answer. And I couldn't articulate, 
articulate it. So I mean, one night I was just thinking and I came up with what I call my two, six, one formula to success. Mm -hmm. And so basically, you know, what I, if I look back at what I did and what I still continue to do, it took me, the two stands for, I locked myself in my office for about two months, created content, put together a bunch of uh, community location pages, did my about page, created a ton of content. And that content took about six months to marinate, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of getting traction when it comes to SEO. So it's, it's, it's about setting real, realistic expectations up front. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. So I, I spent about two months just, you know, I would say an hour to two hours a day, maybe even more. It took about six months to get traction, continuing to do now maybe about 10 to 15 minutes a day. And then it took about one year for the magic to start to happen in terms of the SEO juice and the secret sauce. So, but in the meantime, you know, once I put in that hard work for the first couple of months, uh, I, I still probably find every morning when I get up, the first thing that I do is I look at what content's going out. I make sure that it's perfect. Make, I've got my checklist of all the things that I do. So I spend probably, I'd say 10 to 15 minutes, uh, five days a week now, just making sure that my content is, is good for my local area. Yeah. And so you're generating, you know, enough to do a deal or two, maybe even three per month, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. like more than most people do. Definitely like good volume. Um, if you wanted to expand outside of the area and do even more, like, would you have to do another two months or is it like, does it get easier? It gets easier. But the thing is like, I mean, you got to know who you are and what you want to do. Like I used to aspire to be that. I just don't want that anymore. Like, yep. I want to keep it lean and mean, like I could go to other markets. Uh, I could, I mean, there's a lot of things I could do, but I'm happy with my, you know, one to three deals a month at an average net profit of, you know, 12 to up to $40,000 per deal. Um, and I mean, the key is, you know, it goes back to the balance sheet in terms of keeping expenses down, not being over leveraged you know, being able to put yourself in a position to be able to do that. And, you know, now, I mean, 100% of all the doors that we own, I own free and clear. And, uh, and awesome. I just, I've just, you know, I help a lot of people with with their markets outside of my market. That's where I get some of the biggest pleasure lately yeah. is when people reach out to me. So I could do it. I just, I just don't want to, to me, it's about my freedom number and time freedom and flexibility to yep. uh, do what I do and continue to pile it into income producing assets. And that's, you know, what you just said is like one of the biggest things that, you know, not that I'm perfect at it, but like whenever we have an agent that we talk to or consult with in any way, it's like, we got to get clear about what you want because right. some people want to be in 50 markets and they want to own the world and that's their gratification. And for some people it's like, well, I just want to have more time back. And for some people it's something else. So it's like, until you know that it's tough. And I, I like the fact that you basically said I'm good where I'm at because like most people don't do that. Right. And right? I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I always aspire to be more and, and level up my game. So, I mean, I'm always one for, you know, Anthony Robbins, can I constant never ending improvement? So I'm always upping my game, but yeah, yeah, it, it's just, I, you know, I had a big mortgage team and I just don't want to manage a bunch of people. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, 
Cool. So what, what advice would you give to an agent who's out there that hasn't started investing yet? I'd tell them to get started right away. Cause at the end of the day, you know, your typical real estate agent, they're only as good as their last commission. And, you know, a lot of them don't have a whole lot to fall back on other than, you know, maybe the equity of their home, some investments, but, you know, real estate for me, it's about working yourself out of having to produce as an agent and being that you have a license and, and you're an agent and I mean, you know, the market, uh, it's silly for me, not, for agents not to invest in real estate. Uh, it just tells me that they don't really understand, you know, real estate from an investment standpoint and all the benefits that come along with owning real estate. But I would say just get started. And, uh, I mean, you got to pick what you want to do. I mean, it's easy to, in, in real estate, whether you're an investor or an agent, it's easy to go chase the next shiny object. Yep. So like we talked about, you know, get, get clear on what it is that you want, you know, single family homes in certain neighborhoods, multifamily, you know, we do a lot in the mobile home space and we're doing really well there with this market turning the way it is. So you just got to get clear on what you want and uh, just start out and start doing it. Uh, but yeah, to me, it's silly for those that aren't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Taking action, I think is the number one thing. Like, I think I hate to say this, like you want to plan, you want to know what you want, but I think sometimes like you got to start to even figure that out. Right. Um, you know, you talked about, you had a huge mortgage team at some, some point in your head, you were like, that's going to be amazing. Right. And then you did <laughs> and you're like, wait a second, I don't want to manage all these people. So like you could have planned for decades to say, yes, I'm building a huge mortgage team. And it's like, until you start doing it, you're like, actually, I didn't realize my personality doesn't jive with, with that. And the same thing with investing. It could be that you think you want to flip and then you hate managing contractors or you think you want to own multifamilies and you, you realize that it's single families that you want to own. So yeah, the, the definitely the, the step is to take action. And, um, right. and you know, a lot you, of times, I mean, I didn't get clear in terms of what I wanted until, you know, pretty far down the road. So until you start doing it, it's, it's hard to get clear early other than, you know, it, it, the clearer, the more you do, the clearer it becomes. That's exactly right. Like for, for me, like, I know, like I've, I've thought a million times, this is it, this is a hundred percent what I'm going to do when I grow up. And then like something changes or you realize that you don't like something as much. And, mm -hmm. but either way that the first step is always, you've got to take action. And even if it's a small action, to get started in investing, whether it's like to do a small renovation or own a small, you know, piece of, of rental real estate or whatever, like that momentum will get you started. And you're naturally like you talked about like, hey, like, you know, maybe your goals aren't like as huge as like, you know, some people that like want to like completely own the world. But like one thing that you talked about every single step of the way over the 30 plus year career is like you are always upgrading. So regardless of like how big your goals are and you're doing very impressive things, you always kept, you know, leveling up all along the way. So, um, you know, I think it's super impressive, like what you've done um, and the fact that you've got them all free and clear, like that's just another strategy that like some people are a big fan of, some people aren't. But like one thing you can't take away from that is like, hey, if, if, if all goes wrong, like you're safe, you're secure, you, you've got great assets, like 
you know, to you. Well, a lot of my investor friends give me a hard time telling me, you know, if the market turns and we get a big turn, I'll, absolutely I'll leverage it. But, uh, you know, I saw what happened in the last go around. But the way, you know, and I had mortgages on everything. And just in the last year, we've been able to pay everything off. But the way I buy on the, the holds is, I put enough money down to be able to cash flow anywhere from two to $400 on a 15 year fixed mortgage. And so everything that I do, and it's worked out well, even on our primary residence has all been always on 15 years. And so I'm focused on cash flow, and I'm also focused on the balance sheet. But I think a lot of people get way too focused on the cash flow, and they they neglect their balance sheet. And yeah. uh, so I mean, I just have been really conservative in that respect. And, you know, we would save up enough money to be able to buy the next rental on a 15 year with the cash flow that we want, then aggressively pay that off. I love it. Well, I want to thank you for, for coming on. You're a great guest. And um, we'll be back again, guys, next week with another Asian Investor Podcast. Thank you again, Tyler, for joining us. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.